Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our pick of the week this week, this is a this is a perfect example, excuse me, Gadget of the Week, a perfect example of the kind of reasons of why I wanted to have a Gadget of the Week. Because there's this stuff that comes up that I've come across in my day-to-day life, and I'm like, anybody that works on a computer uh, most of their day should have one of these things. Well, today it's the Habit Large Gaming Mouse Pad. Um, it's not your typical mouse pad that you have just on the side, like a little, like a little square. This thing is basically like a desk mat. It covers a large portion of your desk. Your keyboard goes over it. Your hands, uh, your hands sit on it. And if you have the, you know, trackball, you'll set it down there or, or drinks or anything like that. And it, it provides a surface over your desk. Here's what I like about it. First of all, because it's that neoprene, it's very moisture resistant. And so if your, your hands get sweaty or if you, you dribble something on there or something spills, it doesn't go onto the desk. It, it's actually soaked up by the pad. Then you can take the pad and just wash it, rinse it out. The other thing is it feels great on your skin, on your hands, uh, resting on your desk. And so then it doesn't, it's kind of an abstraction. It doesn't really matter uh, what the desk surface looks like. Uh, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. They're only 14 bucks. They're available on Amazon with, with, uh, with prime shipping. I highly encourage you to check out the Habit Large Gaming Mousepad. Our pick of the week is Contrast, K-O-N-T-R-A-S-T. And Contrast is an application that allows you to compare and, and, and demonstrate the difference between two different colors. And so if you're trying to figure out what would work well with that blog, what would work well on your new business site, what would work well for a particular theme, you can put in these two uh, colors that you want to see, and it will show you what the contrast is between those. You can learn more at carlschwan.eu. It's a blog post. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Before we get into the news this week, I want to welcome uh, my guests this week. It is Ryan and Michael from the Destination Linux Network, the Destination Linux Show. Welcome to the program, guys. Thanks for having, Thanks us. For having us. Okay, so the rest of the program has to has to stay on track. Just because all three of us are in the same room, this is a different day. We can't. It's uh, impossible. What's your uh, yeah? What are you talking about? <laughs> Doesn't work like that with us. All right. Well, I want to start with this. The reason that that Ryan and Michael are joining me here today is because Destination Linux, the network, turns one years old. So if this sounds unfamiliar and you're saying, "Who are these three people or two other people joining?" Noah, uh, the short version is there is a show that we do every Sunday. It's called the Destination Linux podcast and it's a show uh for people of all experience levels so whether you're just getting started with linux or you've been doing it for a very long time the three of us get together and we just kind of hash out um what's what has been going on over the last week we each bring a different perspective ryan has extensive experience in high-end hardware 
and and um, and building things and really tearing things apart and understanding how they work. Michael has extensive experience both in graphic design and in production, as well as having been a longtime community member. Uh, all three of us make have independent content creation that we do, and we do a lot of projects collaboratively as well. And so, obviously. If I'm going to talk about a community issue uh, stemming with Canonical, and I'm going to talk about a hardware issue uh, with <laughs> with NVIDIA purchasing ARM, obviously the two people that I have to have on the show, the world's foremost experts, are going to be Ryan and Michael. So welcome welcome to the show, guys. Love uh, being here, and I can't believe somebody called me an expert. That's amazing. I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. For, for the first time ever. <laughs> I signed the plaque. So uh, the, the, the one, I guess one of the things I want to do to kick off the, 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 the exciting uh, celebration of Destination Linux Network one-year-old birthday, I guess we should talk about the network, the collection of shows um, that we do uh, are all collectively under the Destination Linux Network umbrella, and that includes people from all walks of life that are doing all sorts of different things, but Destination Linux is kind of a community central place for us to come together and say, hey, if you like what I do over here on the Ask Noah show, then you're going to like what these people over here are doing with their content. We each bring a different perspective, like I said, and so um, you get a variety of different shows. Uh, some of the show lineups, uh, hardware addicts taking off like gangbusters, Ryan, yeah. you and, and, and Wendy and Michael, you guys dig in. Um, to, to, to the latest hardware news, you guys did a fantastic segment breaking down Thunderbolt and Type-C, people, what people need to know. Uh, obviously, the Destination Linux show that we do on Sundays. Michael, you're doing Tux Digital and your This, uh, this Week in Linux uh, new show, which people can catch every week. And now mm -hmm. we have a different way for people to participate in the community, and it's with the new Zenotic server. You guys invited me to join for a gaming night, and I did. And I may or may not have fallen, fallen in love with it. And I may or may not have become addicted to Zenotic. And so after I went <laughs> well, look, back and there's, there's just, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt because there's just nothing more fun. If you guys have not had a chance than watching Noah experience gaming for the first time, it, it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's, it's like the beginning of the show when you're talking about the mouse pad that covers your desk that have been mm -hmm. out forever. And you're like, Hey, this is this amazing thing. And it is, <laughs> but a lot of people have had them for a long time. And I've had it so long that I even forgot that there's people who don't know that exists. And I know there are, but it's just one of those things. But watching you play Zenotic and Golf with Friends and some of the other games, but specifically Zenotic, was just an absolute blast. And it also, based on some of the kill shots that you got, made me wonder if you were faking out that you've never played <laughs> these type of games before. Yeah, I, I, I have to, uh, I have to go ahead and be honest. It, basically, the best way you could do if you want to, if you want to, like, set yourself an example up is just envision a thirteen-year-old girl screaming. Uh, yes. in excitement at, 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 around every turn. That's essentially my reaction to, to first-person That's exactly what it is. Yeah. So definitely want to watch those live sessions. But yeah, we opened the server up for the entire community. So it doesn't matter which show you're a fan of. You can go there on Zenotic, hit multiplayer, filter for destination Linux, just start typing that in. You'll see the server there. And what's really neat about this is it's an open-source project, Zenotic is, so you can probably get it in your distro software repository. Um, and when you connect to this server, you're going to be able to fight against Michael AI bots and if, if nobody else is on. So you even have action in case nobody else is there. But we have the chance to revitalize this awesome game or bring life back into it and fill those servers again like we did last Sunday and we did during the Game Fest, which is also a pretty cool thing that we can do as a community network. I, I completely agree. And so, um, so 
we're rapidly approaching episode 200 with Ask Noah, and um, that's going to be coming up here in just in just a couple of weeks. And while we're not, uh, there's there's nothing massive that needs to change. There is a few little updates and housekeeping things that need to be done. And so setting aside some time over the next few weeks to begin working on some of those things, we're going to announce some of those updates uh, on episode 200 of the show, which is going to be on uh, the 29th of this month. So before that, uh, what I'm going to be doing is hanging out with people inside of our inside of the uh, inside of our matrix room, which tonight is the first night we're using it. So if you are not in the geek lab on Linux Delta, we invite you to go to riot at linuxdelta.com, sign up for an account there and join the geek lab. It's the on-screen chat room. There's also an interactive Jitsi room uh, that we'll use to bring people on the show. So those are that's some of the smaller stuff. But we've got some other more larger improvements coming to the show. We're going to announce those and talk about those on episode. 200 prior to that um i am going to be around playing on the destination linux network xenotic server so if anybody wants to start we're probably gonna probably gonna be kicking off around uh, 5 p.m central and we'll play probably right up until the intro uh music fires and then we'll kick off the show for that night um so i want to jump in uh, directly to the news i appreciate having you guys here because i i want to get your perspective on this michael i'll start with you there's an unfilled job posting that has been causing a stir in the internet and essentially it was a post and it says and i quote what i've seen here is a culmination of a violation of the very social contracts that this community created and has long since honored mark and isn't the only responsible but rather all the most recent Depart community council members failed to gracefully step down and transition things to new leaders. As you can see, the Ubuntu community team started winding down some years ago, first with the departure of Jonah Bacon and then many of his colleagues who were moved to other functions within Canonical. I've seen some of these people at conventions in the past years, and many of them now... Many of them have now left Canonical entirely. And so the post goes on to question, are they really that invested in the community at this point? Uh, And if they are invested in the community, does Mark himself still care and is Mark involved? And the, the job posting that caused this stir is essentially for a community liaison. Uh, and this posting has gone unfulfilled for some time and the community leaders before that have gone unfulfilled for some time. And, uh, the the great thing about the community is when this post went up uh, on Ubuntu's forums, there were people from all different perspectives and all different walks in the community. Most of them were very respectful and kind, um, but had a very lively discuss- discussion that eventually got Mark's attention himself. And Mark's response was, quote, I'm not absent. In fact, for the past few years, I've set aside all other interests and concerns to help Ubuntu get into a position of long-term sustainability. That has been amazingly that has been an amazingly difficult job, but I set my mind to it precisely because I care that much about Ubuntu as a community, and that community has a backbone which is durable. So much so that it irks me when we don't have someone to help you in place. I also don't think things have fallen apart. I've just stepped in whenever I thought there was a real issue that needed addressing. Those are Thankfully, few and far between. I watched how CC members stopped coming to meetings, stopped organizing their meetings, stopped giving, uh, excuse me, stopped driving activity. This is obviously not a universal picture, but there have been harder working and less hardworking CC bodies. And there have been more effective and less effective CC members. I understand it's hard to put a lot of effort into something that doesn't seem to correspond directly to a specific project or outcome. But I also saw that the CC paralyzed when equal tensions flared up because it's difficult to draw a line on bad behavior when you're not used to holding people accountable. And I want to circle back to that particular quote. It's difficult to draw a line on bad behavior when you're not used to holding people accountable. It would be nice if saying yes to everyone 
made things effective, but it doesn't. It would be nice if everybody was constructive and collaborative, but they are not. Now, it's indefensible that we haven't actually put forward candidates for the CC. That's on me, and it's my responsibility. I haven't done it partly because I asked somebody else to professionalize this work, something I cannot realistically do, and they have let me down. And also partly because it's just not the biggest problem to solve right now. None of that is me being absent or uncaring or indifferent. Partly it's me being unsure how to restructure a community leadership function that can perform Real, satisfying work that requires dedication, judgment, but also generates a reward for those who put in the effort. If the work on the CC were so rewarding, more CC members would have shown up to their meetings. I think we can do better, but we probably need to do it differently. By all means, continue this thread. I think it's interesting to see what others might come up with in terms of how we improve community representation and coordination. Now, I, and I guess, Ryan, I want to get your perspective on this too, but I understand, first of all, where Mark is coming from when he says that as people have become less interested in this particular position, Canonical is fundamentally unable to fill it, and thus they're unable to perform that role. So I guess I'll start with this. Michael, do you think that's a fair characterization of of what has transpired over the past few years as, as it relates to the Ubuntu community? Yeah, I think that there's a the, the way he describes it is is very unfortunate and disappointing, but it's also understandable and not disappointing in the sense of what he's saying. It's disappointing in the sense of the situation that it, we're currently in. Like he says, it would be nice if everybody was constructive and collaborative, but they are not. And that is 100% true that, that what I've seen over the past 10 years of just a lot of anti-canonical, anti-Ubuntu stuff. And maybe part of the the reason why they can't find someone to fill that role is because being a community leader for Ubuntu means you're a target for that vitriol and hostility. And maybe people just don't want to be a part of that and want to deal with that target. Because unfortunately, Ubuntu has done, the, in my opinion, Ubuntu has done the most for any, uh, the, the Linux ecosystem as any company has done, period. And and people would argue that, you know, Red Hat has done a ton. And yes, they have. But I think for the desktop for for Linux, I think Ubuntu and Canonical has done by far the most. And yet they are also hated the most. And I don't really understand why other than people don't liking change and don't liking innovation. So that part just I, I understand why he's saying that there's that if everybody was constructive and collaborative, but they're not. And I think that's even that's being generous and saying that it's not even just about not being constructive, I think there's a lot of hostility that is completely unjustified. You, we can go back and read the entire letter and I incur, or the entire post, and I encourage you to do so on Canonical's forums. And Ryan, I, I guess what I would ask you is this. I understand his frustration, and I even understand his frustration with his team. I've experienced it myself. There are some things I don't have time for. I paid you to do a thing. If you're not going to do a thing, then uh, what am I paying you for? Uh, that's you know, But that's how I have to solve that problem because I'm not going to do it myself. I understand that perspective. I'm not sure I quite understand or see eye to eye with him on throwing those people under the bus in a public way. I'm curious on your thoughts on that. Look, as somebody who's led people for over 21 years now, uh, I learned a long time ago, you don't do that type of stuff publicly. It's really not the right way to go about it. Although I appreciate the fact that his honesty in it and trying to be honest and kind of open with the community on the situation, but really what you want to present to the community, especially as a company the size of Canonical, you know, a growing company as it is, is that you have a path forward, you know what the path forward is, and you're going to make the changes to get out there and get in front of the community and fix the issues that are there. But they don't need all the details behind the scenes because it just looks like it's a ship that's not running well. And as a business, 
that has other businesses investing in their architecture, you don't want them picking up on those blog posts and seeing those things and wondering, well, geez, if you can't even, you know, manage community managers and that stuff, uh, do I really want to put my network and everything else there? And obviously that's not the case. Ubuntu does a great job with that stuff. And the reality is he was just speaking the truth, but I don't think it was probably the right place to open up about all of that. It, it is a situation that I think um, needs to be addressed within Ubuntu, the community engagement and getting back into engaging with the community specific to the desktop. I think a lot of people are feeling like there's a big lull there from what Ubuntu was and what it is today. So it will be interesting to see bringing back this community forum, but also listening to them because that's a big part of somebody wanting to take on that responsibility. As Michael said, it comes with a lot of negatives, uh, but if they're going to take on that responsibility, it's going to be because they have an actual voice that's listened to within the company. I think the landscape is is changing. I don't think. it's uh, The landscape is changing. Anybody that has been in this space for a long time can acknowledge this. And the truth is, and anybody that listens to this show, if you're, we're coming up on episode 200, the, you're not going to find anybody more dedicated to the Linux desktop than myself. You're just not. I'm going to run a Linux desktop because it's where I'm most comfortable and what's where all the applications that I want to use are. And frankly, it, it, but, but if you see value in that and you say, yep, I agree with, I agree with that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I want to do that too. Good for you. And if you say to yourself, you know what, that's fine. But for work, I have to use this platform or that platform. It doesn't really matter because it's on the web. Good for you too. Here's what I, here's what we can agree on. Here's the common ground that we can agree on. We can agree on the fact that it's way more fun to get to know the people that you're learning from rather than having a five minute conversation from a guy who really knows the stuff, but he works at Microsoft and on the other end of the Microsoft support call, it's MS agent 15274 and MS agent 15274. He knocked the issue out in 30 seconds, but good luck ever thanking him by being able to repay the favor when he needs some help and good luck ever buying him dinner at the next fest for bailing your butt out of a hard time because he's MS agent 15274. And he closed the ticket and went home and forgot about you and you forgot about him. And that this to me is where the community is so valuable because it humanizes the connection that we share as geeks. It humanizes and, and, and allows a, a deeper connection to be brought together for the purpose of developing better software. And when the, I've, I've, we've watched that leveraged with by Canonical, we've watched that leveraged by Red Hat. Um, we're about to watch this being leveraged in a large way by NVIDIA and ARM, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, and I've leveraged it to a smaller ex extent and on a smaller scale um, for doing small business IT, but the model is exactly the same, and it's that we connect with other people, serve those people well, and then they thank us with dollars. So in some cases, um, there's j it's just casual kickback. We sit back, we hang out in Matrix, or we hang out in Mumble, or we play Xenotic, and we wind down because we worked on something or we accomplished something, and Canonical has a very important role to play in that process. But to be honest with you, I'm, I'm really, I'm scared for the position that they're in because right now this role is not filled. And right now the community has noticed that these roles have gone unfilled and that there is nobody headed in this direction. And, the, and so what is happening or what is, I'm afraid is going to happen is people are going to start, uh, exploring their own paths and having their own ideas and, and, and going their own way. And with nobody, with no central point of contact with Canonical to say, here's what we're doing, here's what we're trying to do, and, 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 and here's how you can best either support that effort or what efforts are you doing so we can support you, when that link is damaged, uh, I, I think Canonical becomes at a fundamental disadvantage. And yeah, so, so they, 
they may have fantastic communication to your point internally and know exactly where they're going and have this fantastic path that opens up the desktop and shows all these things that they're doing. And I've seen teams like this before. I've, I've worked with teams that have this issue where they have an amazing relationship internally. Everybody that works together is like a family, but nothing leaves that little nest. And so from everybody outside of it, it looks like nothing's getting accomplished, but inside it's, it's like an echo chamber. And, and that echo chamber thing is actually another point to bring up without the community management, without somebody going to the community and bringing some of these back or defending them as Michael does uh, here, you know, talking about there's a lot of hate and things out there for the company. If there's not anybody out there defending them and then bringing back the good stuff from some of the comments that may seem negative, but actually have a good point, then you just have an echo chamber of people who are, basically sharing the same ideas, same, same thoughts, and the company's really not moving anywhere. So there's a lot of dangers, especially in open source, to not having those community positions filled. Is there, though? Let, let me ask you a question. What, who is the community manager, community leader for Red Hat? Anybody? Do you have anybody that comes to mind? How about SUSE? Anybody? Is there actually a big deal or is this being blown out of proportion? Because I have no idea of who Red Hat's community manager, if they even have that position in the first place or SUSE's. And to your point, the people that you the, the people that you will run into, if you if you're listening to this episode and you say, Well, this community that you talk of, where do you where do you run into these people? If you join uh, the Geek Lad chat room or you join the Destination Linux Discord or you join if you join any of the places where these geeks hang out, here's who you're gonna run into. You're gonna run into Brandon Johnson from Red Hat. You're going to run into Eric, the IT guy from Red Hat. You're going to run into Popey from Canonical. You're going to run into Martin Wimpress from Canonical. These are the people. These are the, the people that attend these community events and the people that you have an on-ramp to. So to a certain degree, Michael, you're absolutely right. Just because there's no formal thing, there's no formal head at this place, it's not like anybody who's been around this space for more than five minutes doesn't know who to reach out to and say, Oi, we need Canonical's attention on this thing. Can you poke your boss for me? I mean, there's that for sure, but I just mean in a sense like the community manager role is being played as if this is some huge hole that they're missing and it is some like massive negative problem. And I don't think it really is because the other pro the other companies in the same space don't have that role. Or I don't even think they have it, period, much less having one field. And yes, w there are certain people we know from the different companies that we can talk to, but there's no one out there just saying, I'm the community manager, that sort of stuff. So while it is kind of odd that they have that role being out there to try to fill it and they haven't been able to fill it, I think that there's a lot of the cases where people are just blowing out of proportion. It's not that big of an issue to not have one, even though they do want one, which actually shows to me that they care that they want one. So I think that it's the fact that they are trying to fill that role is proof that they care. So the idea that they're saying that maybe Mark doesn't care anymore, I was like, maybe they're just overreacting and trying to blow it up where it doesn't need to be. Well, and so and to your point, you can't blame other people for your failures, right? You've got to identify where the obstacles in your path are. Then you've got to attempt to remove those obstacles. And when you come up against an immovable object, that's where you ask leadership for help. I, if people come to me and, 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 and say, hey, no, I need your help with something, and I walk in and it's something that they could do, the first question my, I'm going to ask is, if I'm doing this, why am I paying you? So to a certain extent, it's not the open source doesn't work if you're not a self-motivated person to begin with. And that the truth is, I relate to Mark's closing remarks. If there are solutions and people are willing to implement them, most businesses 
to include Canonical, are okay with paying somebody to do a job if it's a job that, that, that needs to be done. <clears throat> so Canonical, to that extent, is doing their part. They're offering up money to solve a problem for the things that they, can, they don't have time to solve uh, in their head. What's not going to work is going on the Internet and just saying, hey, there's a problem, because I think we all agree there's a problem. It's nobody stepping up to fix the problem. I absolutely agree, and and I'll disagree with what you said, Michael, because I think Canonical, while it's true that other companies, you don't know their community managers and things out there, Canonical is in a unique position where there's been issues with communication and things. I'm thinking about removing 32-bit as one that comes to mind immediately in which a community yeah, manager sure. having been there could have addressed that very quickly and swiftly because they resolved it. Uh, obviously. So I, I think there's some communication issues and some of the folks that we put in that Canonical's putting in the position that we would reach out to. That's not their day-to-day -day job. That's not what they're responsible for doing. And, you know, a lot of people look to Canonical as that flagship distro. So there's a lot of expectations from a desktop standpoint. And we know that a standard desktop user is going to be more whiny, more complaining than a business and other things. So I, I think <laughs> Probably, from that aspect, yeah. you know, uh, Red Hat and others, you know, have traditionally focused more on the enterprise side and probably have direct communication channels already set up or what you would consider a community manager, uh, but from a business perspective, but from a, you know, desktop perspective, I think in Canonical's case, some really strong, good communication from somebody who's, that's their job would help tremendously in kind of reducing some of the, um, you know, negative feelings and, and context that people create in their own little bubbles about the company. Yeah. yeah, I think I wasn't saying that it wasn't a value. I completely agree with everything you're saying that there should there is a value in them having that. And there would they would be able to solve a lot of the issues that just come out randomly like the 32 bit thing. Uh, but I was more saying the, the fact that people are uh, taking this as more of a drama rather than a, 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 like the, pro, the, the significant issue that it is of just solving this one piece. But they're talking about like they're, they're conflating whether or not this needs to be solved with whether or not Mark Shuttle well, I don't, cares I don't know about if the community. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I don't think they're necessarily saying it doesn't need to be solved. I think everybody agrees on that point. The, the, the problem is that, it, that the, the problem is this, really. The truth is there isn't a, a big future in in desktop Linux per se, because there isn't, uh, that's not the direction that people are going with computers. They're going the smartphone route. And what we're going to talk about here in just a couple of minutes, talking about what NVIDIA is doing with ARM, this should double, this should double score the fact that there are two places technology is going to take off in tiny form factor everywhere, horizontal scaling and things like NVIDIA, massive GPU clusters, data centers, high, high, high end performance. That's the two extremes that you're going to exist on. And we're going to rely on the internet in between. And, and, and so as we transition into our, into, this NVIDIA story, we'll start to see how those pieces come together. But as it relates to, to, to this particular scenario, Canonical is smart to focus on containers. They're smart to focus on Internet of Things. They're, they're smart to focus on the server because that's where the rapid development, that's where the biggest use of their software is going to go. Again, not giving up on Linux desktop anytime soon. I'm going to continue to run it because I think it provides the best experience. And as these things uh, start to spin up, do you think my experience on, on a Linux client talking to a Linux server is going to increase or decrease? Um, so I, I, I think that the operating system argument on the desktop is really going to become somewhat moot. But the reality is that the, 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 the thing that I take away from this story is that Mark himself stepped into this discussion and was willing to address some of those points head on. Now, he didn't address Powerful. all. 
Yeah, I, he didn't install them, right? It would have been nice if he would have said, yes, we're stepping away from the desktop or no, we're not stepping away from the desktop and here's why. It'd be nice to have that, but at the end of the day, at least he's involved in that discussion and he 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 stands out and makes a very public statement. No, I'm not stepping away. Yes, I still value the community and here are the problems and then leaves it with, I'm open to fixing them. Can somebody help? Yeah, I don't think you can ask for much more than that. I mean, yeah, you may want more uh, questions answered, but the fact he took the time to do that, I think shows a tremendous amount of leadership on his part to come out to the community and say, hey, I care about these things. I don't agree necessarily with, well, I agree ultimately with where you think PCs are going to go, but I think it's a much longer road uh, than a lot of people assume that we'll get there. Okay, so we agree on that. To me, that's a pretty long road, especially in computer world. Um, but I, I think there's still a lot of money to be made. And I think everything, while the interface, you know, may change or the type of device you're using may change the personal computer, whether you call it a phone, a tablet or whatever, is still going to be necessary. And Linux could be a big part of that, I think, on the front end to the consumer if it actually goes in that direction. But we're still kind of focused on just getting a standard desktop, right? So that that's that's where I'm at with it. The, the, the story I think that everybody is looking to talk about tonight is NVIDIA proposing to buy arm for 40 billion dollars a quick recap if you're not following this story if you're living under a rock arm is an alternative to architecture to intel x86 it's literally in just about everything you own from smartphone streaming media players raspberry pi desk phones smart light switches if you name it and it has a processor and it doesn't look like a computer but it does something that a computer does it probably has an arm processor nvidia by contrast most people, when I say the word NVIDIA, immediately think gaming graphics cards. But the truth is, they're not just known for the graphics cards, but also have some of the best accelerator and AI technology in the world. And they've slowly over time been acquiring, nobody really talks about it unless you're kind of in this space, but they've been acquiring companies like the Israeli uh, uh, interconnect company Mellanox. Um, there are two essential ways that you can grow a company. The most traditional way to grow a company is horizontal scaling, which is what most small businesses do. That is, they do the same thing, but they try to do it for more and more people. Second way you can build a company is you can grow it vertically. That is to say that you try to build a better and better or faster and faster way to do the same thing, thus increasing your value to the market, thus bringing in more money. Arm is a very horizontal company. Is in It doesn't do a lot, but what it does do, it's very inexpensive, and so you can do it everywhere. And that's why it takes off with Raspberry Pis and TVs and so on and so forth. NVIDIA, by contrast, is a very vertical company. The faster the video card works, the more powerful it is, the better the graphics, the happier everybody is. And the thing that is interesting about this point in the semiconductor world is that Intel basically had the ability to offer a free lunch every two years in terms of Moore's Law, the idea being that the density of ICs doubles inside of the same space of a, of a, of a processor every two years. And so effectively, there's no math behind that, but it just, it, it's just generally accepted that if I have a given size processor, that the development cycle up until about five years ago was such that I'd get about twice the processing power every two years. Well, these days that's not happening anymore. Intel has been stuck. They've kind of hit a ceiling and customers now, if they want to move forward, have to build their own custom solutions to get more performance. Now, everybody is out looking for ways to build custom solutions and arm has the largest install base of developers in the world. Look at what Apple is doing and, and where they're transitioning. Look at, every look at every Chinese phone manufacturer. All of these places are looking to ARM, and that's how they have these 500 licensees. So SoftBank, the company who owned ARM, were really focused on Internet of Things. They were very interested and, and, and focused on horizontal 
scaling, whereas NVIDIA was very uh, interested in pushing the limits. And so when NVIDIA starts looking at where they go next, the forward momentum is not in the processor space. It's in graphics. It's in AI. It's in uh, autonomous cars, IoT, password crackers, cryptocurrency, those kinds of things that that NVIDIA and almost NVIDIA alone has the AI technology to do. They want to pair that technology and get that into a mass market, into phones, into autonomous cars, IoT, so on and so forth. And they have the, if they can find a way to integrate their CUDA technology into ARM processors, they're easily going to be one of the largest semiconductor companies, if not the largest semiconductor company in the world. And they have the option to scale from the phone all the way up to the data center and have really tight integration throughout the whole chain. So, uh, Ryan, you're the process, you're, you're the hardware guy. Tell me, what was, what was your first reaction when you heard that there, this deal was proposed? I mean, from a business standpoint, I was like, go NVIDIA. It's quite a brilliant move from their point of view, especially when you think about GPUs being so much better suited for AI and, and deep learning and then leveraging the power of ARM out there. I mean, ARM has shipped 180 billion chips. So when you think about the reach and power of this company, it it's extraordinary. I was kind of surprised that SoftBank let go of this, but they are still retaining a 10% ownership in the new company, essentially being merged into NVIDIA. So they're smart to play that long game there. You know, they're a holdings company, so they go out and they invest in these companies. They've had some investments that if you look on the books, weren't so great and they needed to make up some money. And NVIDIA has taken advantage of that essentially uh, to take on what I would consider one of the most valuable companies from a CPU standpoint out there right now. Um, potentially and arguably more valuable than Intel and AMD in the long game here, just because the amount of sheer devices. And when you talk about the 10 year plan, when you think about how many devices currently run ARM based and how many types of interfaces we'll probably have in the future that are ARM based, it's just kind of a no brainer, especially with Apple going that direction, Microsoft making sure their operating system can work there as well. It's pretty much everyone looking towards ARM as the future and they've just made a major impact. So from a business standpoint, congrats to NVIDIA. Um, as somebody watching the markets and things, I just wonder if this is actually going to go through. I know we're all excited or excited about the thoughts of it, either good or bad. But there's a lot of things at play here, such as the China government and whether they're going to interfere with this. And even there are a lot of talks of individuals in the UK writing the prime minister saying, we can't let go of this asset. You know, we don't let this merger happen. So there's a lot of things at play here that can make this whole thing sink. But it is fascinating. SoftBank is an interesting company, this investment firm that you're talking about. Um, that I looked up a little bit um, and read a little bit about some of their investments, one of which being OneWeb, which was a low-orbiting satellite internet company that was supposedly going to provide internet to everybody, uh, and that went bankrupt. And, uh, and I guess what I saw was that this is a company that was very interested in Internet of Things, but basically they were just kind of chasing, uh, where do we think we're going to be able to make money next? Over here, Internet of Things, that seems to be exploding. Let's dump money. It didn't seem like there was focus and vision. I think NVIDIA now, with the ownership of 500 licensees, if you look at what they're communicating through their through their um, public relations people, they're talking about expanding the, the global offering of ARM licensees to include technology that NVIDIA has developed. So they're actually talking about going the other direction. Um, the concern, though, is that NVIDIA is a U.S.-based company. 
And if the U.S. decides that N- NVIDIA falls under U.S. trade law and is subject to U.S. regulatory environment, then one of the biggest concerns is that the technology that ARM provides, which is, as we talked about, practically in use everywhere, is now controlled by NVIDIA here in the United States. This deal, to your point, Ryan, about maybe it not going through, is going to require clearance from four different countries. And so most experts are giving this a 50-50 shot proposal. They have a 18-month period in which they're going to get guidance to see if they can get this deal to go through. Uh, it requires signatures from the U.S., U.K., China, and Japan. Now, the U.S. is an easy sign-off. Uh, Japan is probably not a hard sign-off. The U.K. and China is where it gets a little more dicey. I suppose the U.K. to a certain extent is going to be incentivized because SoftBank wants the deal to go through. How do you get China to sign off on this? Chinese devices heavily rely on ARM technology. The U.S. and China, as most of you are aware, have been in a trade war, and this could potentially force China to look elsewhere to protect themselves from having no real competition in the processor market. So what is China's incentive to get on board with this? I don't think they have a whole lot of incentive to get on board with it. I think they have a lot of incentive to block it, especially just from a political standpoint alone with the work that was done with Huawei and others, if nothing else, then to try to make a point. I don't know how successful they would be by themselves in blocking it. Um, I know there is a armed division of China, and I'm sure that you know we haven't officially heard from them. Or I haven't seen any news sources where they've spoken one way or the other, other than analysts. Uh, discussing it, but it will be interesting to say, see their take on it. And, and like I said, I'm not certain if they can block it all in by themselves or if that's a something that they would be willing to spin off into, you know, it, its own division and just go without the China's agreement, the, the armed division of China involved. So there's a lot of ways that this could be sliced and diced to get it to go through. And obviously NVIDIA has a major, um, you know, push to to make this happen one way or the other, even if they have to let go of some of the divisions in the process, if that's even a possibility. Michael, do you have any thoughts when you first heard this news? Were you excited or were you concerned? I mean, I'm not really necessarily concerned. Uh, excited is more of like I'm interested to see what happens, but I, I don't think I would say that I'm concerned um, in terms of like what the ramifications would be because I don't, I don't know what they would be. So I can't really be concerned about it. But in terms of like the, the NVIDIA announcing they wanted arm is it's, it's a genius decision for business wise. And it also puts NVIDIA in a position where they had no CPU offering whatsoever to then become the owners of the, one of the most important architectures period. There is a huge potential for that. And also there could be a negative because of NVIDIA's lockdown nature of uh, like proprietary aspects of everything they do. And that is disappointing. Like I would be much happier if AMD were to do it or something like that. That have been more interesting. But at the same time, it does seem like a, a fit for them. So it, I think it's overall very, very interesting to see what happens. But as far as like the political aspects, I have no idea. Yeah, well, I think it, we're... It's- oh, go ahead. Now, I was going to say it's interesting because NVIDIA addressed that right up front with the fact that they plan to be a neutral party with licensing going forward. But any of us who've been in corporate America for any amount of time know the promises made prior to a merger and what actually happens are two completely different things and outcomes. But it is something that they realize themselves that this is going to be an issue uh, going forward because a lot of the companies that utilize and rely on arms so heavily, Samsung, Qualcomm, Broadcom, you know, Texas Instruments, all of these Apple uh, 
rely on arm in one way or another. And so the idea that basically the competition for a lot of these companies is NVIDIA and now they're going to be licensing it from NVIDIA is a problem uh, in the future, but it's not unheard of. So it's really going to matter of how these relationships NVIDIA has built are going to forge forward because, you know, for instance, Apple buys its screens from Samsung. It's not unheard of for companies to basically acquire assets from a competitor, but this is a lot of competitors and that could be a situation where they're going to run up to run up against as well as it may not be blocked by government. It may be tried to be sued by some of these competitors and the contracts that they have. To keep it from going through. I think ultimately this is, I think ultimately they will work together because to a certain extent you have to consider this, right? The, I mean, it's not like it's free, right? It's not like they just walked over and picked up Arm and said, now we own you. They paid $40 billion and they can't do anything to risk the investment of that $40 billion investment. Part of that, part of the reason Arm demands that cost is, or that, fun, or that price is because all of China wants to sign contracts with Arm to build their phones. All of Apple wants to sign contracts with Arm to build their phones. So to a certain degree they're not there's not a lot of incentive other than uh, other than uh, you know uh, throwing the money they just spent out the window and and uh, but on the other side nvidia and arm stand to gain a lot from each other because nvidia plays in a lot of the places that arm doesn't or is not successful and that's in that high-end photorealistic quality rendering gpu farms ai farms those kinds of things nvidia brings incredible capitalization to arm uh, look at how far we got with the Raspberry Pi. Look at where we are with the Raspberry Pi 4 and where we started with the Raspberry Pi 1 and the cost of of, of what you can do with that computer. ARM has succeeded in the data center, in automotive, in IoT, in MPU markets. Um, they they need to, what the, the best choice that NVIDIA can make is to stay committed to let ARM do what they do best, and that is creating licensing IP in a globally neutral way. They don't try to control it. NVIDIA is, if they're able to standardize on that CUDA and AI technology, they will dominate the semiconductor world. I'm confident of it. And so I think you're, I think that's going to be good for a number of reasons. I think, first of all, I think you're going to see a lot more cooperation between Linux and NVIDIA because I think that the, I don't think you're going to be running Windows on a lot of these ARM devices. I think that ARM's success is beneficial for the UK. In fact, they have announced plans to expand the research and development efforts out of Cambridge. Uh, and I, they've, they've consistently said that they're committed to keeping ARM open for good and open in the long run. And so I think all of those things lead to making NVIDIA more successful, ARM more successful, I am concerned about all the concentration of power in, in, a, in a very, you know, the tech space gets more and more dominated by U.S. dominated companies. And that terrifies me. But I think overall, this is going to be a really exciting thing. And we're going to finally start to see some real innovation happening in the, pro, in the, in the processing world. I think you make a great point. I mean, to me, it scares me to death that you can fit most of the major companies that we buy our technology from in Silicon Valley around one single table now because all the power is being consolidated into just a few. And that's an issue. But NVIDIA, until there's you know somebody else that steps in to stop that consolidation of power, NVIDIA is making a brilliant business move here. I'm surprised they didn't have more competition and more bidding behind the scenes to pay even more for this company because I think anybody who understands technology understands the dominance that ARM really has here. I see a lot of people, you know, rumoring out there that this is going to drive China and other companies uh, to move to RISC-V and other architectures that are similar. And 
at the end of the day, if it does that, let's say NVIDIA doesn't keep its promises here during the merger, which in most mergers, companies don't frankly keep their promises. But let's let's say that they don't in this case, then you do have the situation where another competitor can rise from the ashes in a more open source format like RISC-V would, and you could see some movement and gain in the industry overall from there. So, you know, if it does go through, which I think this is going to be one heck of a battle to watch, um, I, I think that there could be some good things that come out of it, even if NVIDIA kind of goes into a closed source type modeling. Do you think there's a, do either of you think there's a privacy aspect to this? I mean, now you have, a com- again, a company under uh, United States law that manufactures ever or, or owns the IP for everything top to bottom. Is that a problem? Consolidation of power, in my opinion, has always been a, a, a concern. So, yeah, I think it's a it's a real big issue, but it's kind of where the industry keeps going in the technology world. All these companies just keep merging, emerging, 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 and it's all consolidating into these single entities. And what we find when that happens is not more privacy and more freedom with the products, but lockdown uh, IPs, lockdown information, lockdown ability to repair your own device, lockdown on all these laws and lots of lobbying and all of this stuff. And they certainly have the money to do it. So from that aspect, I'm not excited about it at all. But I think NVIDIA is just following the industry. They're allowed to keep merging and buying companies endlessly. And that's kind of the world we live in right now. And I don't personally agree with it. I think it's caused more damage than good. But yeah, I absolutely think it creates privacy issues. Does does this change the landscape for AMD at all? Do they look at this and do they have a whole new battle in a totally different way? Or is this so far above and beyond what AMD's market is that it doesn't really affect them? You know, it's interesting. AMD has done some amazing things recently with creating some of the most powerful partnerships, not only in the server world, which NVIDIA wants to compete with desperately, but also even on the console market and other places where NVIDIA you would expect would have been dominant. For instance, you know, the new Xboxes, new Playstations, these are big sellers. These are massive products that AMD solidified, not NVIDIA, even though technically on paper, they have the fastest GPUs out there. So I I think AMD is definitely going to be worried about this acquisition. I think this creates a whole new competitive market from the server world and what NVIDIA is going to be able to do with it. But if AMD smart and NVIDIA sticks to their word that they could still utilize these licenses and develop on top of it and perhaps create a better product out of it, it's not unheard of. I mean, uh, I believe x86 is AMD's technology that's being mm-hmm. licensed out. So, I mean, it's, it's happened before and you can see the dominance that Intel had from that. So I, I think they could still be very competitive here. We'll continue to watch it, and as the deal moves forward, it's going to be a while, 18 months, but as we continue to learn more, we'll continue to bring it to you. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to touch on it. Great news for Lightworks and QScan users. They have announced the formation of a software company called LWKS. This is a dynamic, forward-thinking company dedicated to content creation industry. Now, one of the things that is, uh, I'm hoping this means... EditShare got uh, sold Lightworks, essentially, is what this amounts to. But what I'm excited to see is a company who wants to do something with this product. And Ryan, I know that you've used Lightworks. Michael, I think you've used it once or twice, but prefer a different editor. The, the reality, mm-hmm. the, where we get to with this is that Lightworks is is a quality professional tool. Um, it just doesn't have the forward 
uh, forward momentum that a lot of other nonlinear video editors have. And to be honest, it doesn't share the same kind of workflow that most modern editors uh, want. And so it's in desperate need of being updated and brought into the 21st century. And I think that this allows them to do that. They've not given up on open sourcing Lightworks. They've just kicked it down the road perpetually and said that the code is not in good enough shape to be able to do that. Um, what do you guys think? Is this is this an is this an editor that you would consider using? Is this is an editor that would make a difference to you if the code were were open sourced? Or has Caden Live and other editors like OpenShot gotten to the point that we really have other professional editors now that are open source? Well, for me, I think that Caden Live is fantastic application for open source video editing. I think it is way more powerful than a lot of people think it would be. And also in comparison to the other options, it is very, very good. But in terms of professional video editing, there are some things where I miss other applications. And I think that there is a significant difference between a professional application for video editing and Caden Live. I think Caden Live is fantastic but it doesn't really hit that level of professional. I do think Lightworks has a professional level, but it's uh, it's plateaued. So it, there's a lot of things that is missing in Lightworks that are available in Caden Live and also a lot more that are available in other options like DaVinci Resolve or Adobe Premiere or whatever, insert any professional tool. And I think Lightworks plateau is what makes me not want to get it. But if they were going to you know, bring in a lot of momentum. And then especially if they're going to open source it, if they open source Lightworks, I would be ecstatic about being involved in using it. And I would do as much user testing if they want me to, because there is so much potential that Lightworks has if it was open source. I already think it's op- it, it has potential. And I think that it, it has that, like because they put a Linux option, I am super excited about it too. But it does seem like they haven't really put that much effort in for a while. And like, for example, they released the, uh, the first version where they didn't have this weird interface that you had to manually set everything up was like last year. And to me, they're just far behind in terms of making a, a big stride mm-hmm. in the space. So if they were to do that, if they were to do open source, I am so in. Yeah. But if they were just to go in momentum and just increase their output, I would be also very, very interested in being a, a customer for them because I think Lightworks has a, a ton of potential to bring professional level uh, video editing to Linux. And I think that they are in the position to do that the best. And I hope they do. I agree. I agree. Uh, we'll get to our email at the end of the show. You can send it in to live at asknoahshow.com. We'll try and address it on the program. First email writes and says, Noah, First, I just want to say thank you for being an excellent ambassador for the open source and Linux ecosystem. I recently discovered your podcast through the YouTube channel, Linux for Everyone, and I've been enjoying it. One thing I use on Linux is eSword via Wine for my Bible study. I heard, however, that you mentioned Xiphos, and I would like to know if there's a native Linux program instead. Is there a way to convert my eSword modules over to Xiphos? format. Also, while I don't have much to give, I'd love to support your podcast. What's the best way I can go about doing this? Um, so in order, uh, actually, the eSword is what runs underneath Zypho, so there should be no uh, converting necessary. You should just be able to import those eSword modules right into Zyphos. Um, as far as supporting the show, you can go over to linuxdelta.com, click on the Patreon link. Um, I certainly don't expect anything. I do it uh, because I like doing it, but... Uh, Jesse, if you want to help out, we'd appreciate it. Uh, second email writes in, says, Hi, Noah. Tim for Berlin, Germany here. I'm a longtime listener of your show, and I have a Lenovo IdeaPad 530S with an i7-8550U, 16 gigabytes of RAM. My question, I'm new to USB-C, so 
what can I buy to plug into the USB-C port to provide more ports for external devices or other peripherals, maybe an Ethernet connection? Do I buy a dock, a port replicator, or a hub? USB-C 3, 3.1, Thunderbolt, power delivery, does it work with Linux and Windows? I feel quite confused by it all and would love some advice. Any recommendation on which one to get or which one to look out for? Keep up the great work you're doing and supporting all your listeners with your great advice. Um, so uh, the, the answer is the Type-C port can be connected to a number of different things on the other side of the bus. And the best thing that we could have on the other side of the bus is a Thunderbolt port. And that's going to allow you to charge the laptop. The other thing it's going to allow you to do is if you plug in a Thunderbolt dock, the USB controller that's in the dock is going to be the USB controller that you're using, and it's going to have a PCI connection back to your laptop. So this is going to give you the best performance. Now, if your laptop doesn't have or doesn't support Thunderbolt, and you'd have to look to see if your specific model does, then your only option is to use a regular USB dock, or excuse me, regular USB dock or regular USB hub. Now, there's no the, the downside to doing that is you're essentially splitting your one USB-C port into four other ports. And so you're not creating any additional USB bandwidth because you don't have any additional USB controllers. I hope that makes sense. Our third emailer writes in and says, hi, Noah, I love Linux and use it every day. In fact, I'm the only person in my company that's using Linux as my primary OS. I have been researching services to help me monitor my home security cams. I use PoE cameras and have had some success with Zimoa. And I want some other options. I've heard that ZoneMinder is a good solution. In your opinion, what's the best solution that will cost me little or nothing to manage my home security cameras? If you do recommend ZoneMinder to be one of the best solutions, do you have a recommended way to install it? I use Ubuntu Fedora, but have not had much success in getting it set up. Maybe I could use... I could add some installation instructions to Linux Delta. Thank you so much for all you do. Certainly, if I get time, I'd be happy to write up some instructions on Linux Delta on how to set up ZoneMinder. I've played with it a couple of times. Where I left with it was it's a very reliable product that performs everything it says it's going to do, works completely with open standards. My only problem is the UI is not quite as massaged as I would like it to be. And that's fine for me and might be fine for you, but didn't work so well for people like my wife or some of our customers. And so what we've done at AltaSpeed Technologies, we've gone down the route of using the Synology disk stations installed with Surveillance Station. Now, this is Synology's camera offering, and it works, again, with all open protocols. And so you can purchase an Access camera or a Dahua camera. Those are the two brands that I, I, I really like. Access for the very high-end stuff. They start at about $300, but they conform to open standards and will probably last you 10 years. The Dahua cameras, you can find them for $60, $70 starting point. They're not built quite as well as the Axis. They don't have the same adjustments as the Axis has, but they're also significantly less money. Chances are the 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 Zioma cameras that you already have are probably going to work just fine with either ZoneMinder or uh, surveillance station. So if you want the easiest way to get set up and started, I would suggest going down the route of surveillance systems. If you want to, if you want the most reliable way, then I would, uh, or excuse me, if you want the cheapest way, I would go down the route of uh, ZoneMinder. If you want the most reliable, uh, easy way, I would go down the route of the Synology. Um, before we wrap up, uh, you know, Ryan and Michael, I want to take some time and, 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 and plug a couple of things. Linux for Everyone with Jason Evangelo. He's got some new articles on front page Linux on the AMD RX 6000 GPU. So if you enjoyed the discussion today about graphics processors, we invite you to head over there. There's a pseudo show event Wednesday, September 23rd. Uh, the DLN forum is always open and welcoming to everybody. This week in Linux is now Saturdays at 2 p.m. Eastern and it started streaming again. So if you want to catch the news live every week, make sure to check that out. Michael, they do that at, is they do that from, from the, uh, from the destination Linux or do you have a separate one for, for this week in Linux? 
we actually do it on where I'm just doing a process of testing different methods of doing it. So sure. right now I'll just say link in the show notes, but okay. uh, go to destinationlinux.network and all the information will be there as well. Perfect. Destination.linux.network. Of course you can check it out at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We'll have all of the links. This week is a particularly fantastic week to go and get all of those links because in researching the show for this week, we talked, we, I went back and looked at the acquisition from Mellanox and, 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 and read articles on um, the arm acquisition and, and and some of the some of the things that SoftBank the company had done before that and all of those articles and research are are put into the show. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Of course, you want the latest live to date information. Follow us on Twitter at asknoahshow. Michael and Ryan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I enjoyed hanging out with you guys this week. As always, and I cannot wait to see you in Zenotic where I can uh, no scope one shot you. Yeah, we have to. <laughs> yeah, time out, don't shoot. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> right. But no, we have to do this. By the way, I'll say it again, the 29th, that's going to be episode 200 of Ask Noah Show. We're going to have an Ask Noah Show party. Probably going to get, I'll be in the studio all afternoon that week getting some new infrastructure stuff set up and online. And then uh, we're going to kick off Zenotic about 4 p.m. Uh, Michael and, and Ryan, you guys are more than welcome if you're available that week. Um Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll be there. Not very cool. All right. If you'd like to stay up to date, again, follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. AskNoahShow.com. <laughs>